There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to episode 219 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I would like to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Becca Johnson, Exploded Cupcakes, Matt Vriel, Lana Cartier, Belladonna Nix, Roseanne Turner and Shailia Hamilton. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And I will say, Lana, I don't know if you're Lana Cartier or Lana Cartier, or Cartier, but I went for Cartier just because I felt like it sounded a bit fancier, so I do apologise if I got that one wrong. And our film review this week, our film review is Mimic. Mimic was released in 1997, it has 6 out of 10 on IMDb, and 65% on Rotten Tomatoes. A disease carried by common cockroaches is killing Manhattan children. In an effort to stop the epidemic, An entomologist, Susan Tyler, creates a mutant breed of insect that secretes a fluid to kill the roaches. This mutant breed was engineered to die after one generation, but three years later, Susan finds out that the species has survived and evolved into a large, gruesome monster that can mimic human form. And as always with these film reviews, we're going to do likes, we're going to do dislikes, and we're going to start with our likes. So... Listen, I didn't know what to expect with this film. I never heard of it. I had never seen it. Nick and I are doing a bit of a marathon of 90s disaster movies at the moment and 90s monster movies. So we've watched Godzilla, Dante's Peak, Volcano, Deep Impact, something else that I can't remember. But that you get the idea, right? You get the gist. Twister, that was another one. So we've been watching all of those kind of classic films. And Nick was like, oh, why don't we watch Mimic? So I was like, yeah, cool. And then later I looked it up and I texted him and I was like, do you mean the film with the cockroaches? And he was like, yeah, I do. I don't know. I Not what I expected. And I did not know what to expect going into this film. But you know what? It was surprisingly good. It is a Guillermo del Toro film. And I generally really like del Toro films. I find them interesting and almost fairy tale like and I like them a lot and this one was no different. I enjoyed it. Is it wildly far-fetched and completely ridiculous? Yeah, at points it is. But it also got me thinking about animals that have been introduced to an area to try and get rid of an epidemic of other species that have then caused a problem like the cane toads. And did you know that all toads are actually frogs? But not all frogs are toads. And if a film has the ability to prompt this level of scientific thirst and exploration, 
then you know it's a good film. This definitely is not the type of film where like cockroaches are taking over the city or whatever. It is very much a film where the humans enter into their world. So you have a small group of mismatched human beings who are all there for very different reasons who end up in this subterranean world that is dominated by these big human mimicking cockroaches. And maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just because I love a creature feature, but I really did not think it was that bad. I was engaged the whole way through. And there's lots of different sort of sequences of attacks in this movie. Like the cockroach creatures are attacking every which way. Various different things happen. But each time it's engaging because each time it's within a different context. The attack is different. The fight back is different. And I really wanted to see these people fight back. I was rooting for these people. I was like, yeah, you kick the shit out of those giant cockroaches. I want to see it. Because a lot of it is set underground, I felt like it gave Del Toro a huge amount to work with. So you could catch glimpses of the creatures. You could see them sort of skittering around in the background. Or you had these tunnels to go down. So there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of tension, a lot of underground creepiness that was happening within the story. And because you're sort of plunged into this underground terrain with these unlikely characters that are all thrown together, it does feel claustrophobic and you do feel like you're there with them and you want them to win. And actually, it was genuinely funny at points. There's this bit where the characters end up in this place, this like sort of cavernous room or whatever under the ground with a police officer who doesn't know anything that's going on. He's just he just happens to be there. And they go into the room and there is just feces, piles and piles of feces sort of hanging from the roof. And the two guys turn to the police officer and they're like, have you ever seen anything like this before? And he goes, what the fuck? No, I haven't. Of course, how would I have seen something like this before? And I just thought it was so real. It was... (laughs) It was so real and so good because it was like, of course I haven't, you absolute moron. And I felt like that is good script writing. That is good, believable, lovable script writing. I am here for it. And during this movie, there were some really cute and funny kids that were involved. But let's just say that this film does not shy shy away from the uh, savaging of small children, which actually isn't very common in these kind of films. It's not often that children get brutally butchered and I was kind of here for it which leads me to the dislikes look it's a bit of a silly film okay there were points when I was like I'm just gonna put it out there the science doesn't seem to be sciencing for me now look I'm I'm not a scientist I know that shocks people all the time I'm not a scientist I'm not an expert in insects but I did find it hard to believe the scientific jargon that was spouted throughout this film. And I know that in a film like this, you have to suspend your disbelief. But I was I was kind of impressed that these insects were somehow able to disguise themselves as human beings. They had created these sort of face-like shells that they used as masks, which for me, I was like, is this a step too far? But then again, like look at stick insects. Famously, look like sticks. Very difficult to tell them apart from sticks. There's lots of creatures that mimic their surroundings in order to survive. Who am I to say that these giant cockroaches couldn't do the same? And there were many, many points throughout the film where you would suddenly be told something about the cockroaches that very neatly fit into the script. 
at just at that moment in time, you know, where it was suddenly like, oh, they can, they're attracted to blood. We've not heard any of that before. You know, halfway through the film, we realise that the cockroaches are attracted to blood, but there's been no indication of that before. One of the other things that annoyed me was the boy with his clickety clackety spoons. That really annoyed me because it just didn't seem to fit in with the story. So there's a boy in it who has these clickety clackety spoons like like the instrument, the spoons, that kind of vibe. And he mimics clickety clackety sounds that he hears on the spoons. And interestingly, the cockroaches make a clickety clackety sound and he mimics that sound. He gets like whisked off into the underground oblivion by these cockroaches. Never explained why he survived and why they didn't brutally kill him. There's no 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 explanation. We can assume it's because of the spoons, but that is not alluded to. I think fundamentally I enjoyed this film a lot more than I thought I would. I think Del Toro creates a really dark and seedy atmosphere. I think, look, giant cockroaches, what a good villain. Why not? Is it kind of absurd? Yeah, completely. But can you put that aside and still enjoy it? Also, yeah, completely. I think, you know what, Mimic is going to get a 3.5 for me. It's not going to change your life, but it's definitely an enjoyable film. It feels like a really good film to watch with friends or a good sort of, I don't know, like date night film. It's fun. It's got all of the epic brilliantness of a creature feature. And you've got cockroaches that are the size of men that mimic humans somehow. What more could you want from life? That's 3.5 for Mimic. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Which brings us to our story this week, which you'll be surprised to know has nothing to do with giant cockroaches with human mask faces. Our story today is a deep dive into Shepton Mallet and the infamous disappearance of Owen Parfit. Let's get into it. Shepton Mallet is a small, quaint, sleepy market town in Somerset in England. It lies 16 miles southwest of Bath, 18 miles south of Bristol and five miles east of Wells. Its estimated population in 2019 was 10,810. The name Shepton derives from the Old English Shep and Tun meaning sheep farm. It has been a settlement since before the Roman invasion and today it is best known for being the closest town to the Glastonbury Festival, a producer of cider and baby sham and boasting stunning views of the Mendip Hills. 
but beneath its mild, picturesque exterior. Shepton Mallet is a hive of paranormal activity, boasting the oldest and most haunted prison in the UK, HMP Shepton Mallet, and the infamous story of the disappearance of Owen Parfit. His Majesty's Prison, Shepton Mallet, at the time of its closure in 2013, was the oldest operating prison in the UK. It was opened in 1625 as a house of correction for the idle poor. The idle poor were people who were considered to be unwilling to work and vagrants who were beggars. This was decreed by the 1601 Poor Relief Act. However, by the end of the Civil War in 1645, the institution was already in disrepair. The conditions were extremely poor. Men, women and children were incarcerated together in small overcrowded cells. They were very poorly treated, often left starving and soon the cells became riddled with smallpox due to the lack of hygiene and the overcrowding. These conditions continued throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. In 1773, a commissioner appointed by Parliament to inspect prisons around the country reported the following about HMP Shepton Mallet. Many who went in healthy are in a few months changed to emaciated, dejected objects. Some are seen pining under diseases, expiring on the floors in loathsome cells of pestilential fevers and the confluent smallpox. Victims, I will say not to cruelty, but I must say to the inattention of sheriffs and gentlemen in the commission of peace. The cause of this distress is that many prisons are scantily supplied and some almost totally unprovided with the necessities of life. By the late 17th and early 18th centuries, there was finally a series of improvements at HMP Shepton Mallet. In 1790, the prison was expanded. Men and women were separated, and in 1822, a series of improvements were made to the cells following the criticisms of conditions. However, conditions were still very tough certainly by today's standards. In 1843, a treadmill, not the kind you would find in modern gyms, was installed to punish inmates with hard labour. Forty men would tread the wheel for long hours, which even caused hernias in convicts. This wheel powered a grain mill outside the prison wall, Other hard labour punishments included breaking stones, which were used for road building, and unpicking old ropes. In 1842, a government inspector reported that HMP Shepton Mallet was in greatest want of new cells for the purpose of dividing the prisoners from each other. In number 11 of Ward 8, no fewer than eight men have slept in the same room in company from January to September 1841. Although, in this very room, there are only six bedsteads. Boards are brought in and placed on the floor when bedsteads are not sufficiently numerous. 
After being closed in 1930 due to the reduction in prisoner numbers, HMP Shepton Mallet was reopened in 1939 as a military prison for British and then American soldiers. Despite the passage of time, conditions were still very unpleasant for the inmates. During World War II, 300 men were housed in the prison, some sleeping in huts in the yard. In November 1940, three incarcerated British soldiers died of carbon monoxide poisoning in room 142. A number of executions took place at HMP Shepton Mallet. Numbers are vague up to 1889, but from 1889 to 1926, records state that seven people were executed in the facility. They were buried in unmarked graves in the prison walls. During World War II, 18 servicemen were executed, 16 by hanging and two by firing squad, all for cases of murder, rape or both. The Americans constructed a new execution block and gallows, which resembled the old facility and was capable of double hangings. This was then converted to the prison library in 1967. It continued to be in use as a military prison for another 20 years. The Cray twins, who later became infamous London gangsters, were imprisoned there in the early 1950s for deserting the British Army. But by 1966, it was reopened as a civilian prison, remaining in constant use until 2013. HMP Shepton Mallet is widely regarded as the most haunted prison in the world. Many paranormal phenomena have been witnessed there, including doors mysteriously slamming shut, cold spots, disembodied voices echoing through the corridors, and even people being touched by someone when no living person was anywhere near them. The prison now holds regular ghost tours and offers overnight stays for people keen to witness a supernatural event. There are two widely reported ghosts who allegedly haunt the prison. The first is Private Lee Davis. Davis was an 18-year-old private in the US Army. The US Army used the prison as a base between mid-1942 and September 1945. Initially as the 6,833rd Guardhouse Overhead Detachment and then the Headquarters 2,912th Disciplinary Training Centre. Davis was one of the 18 servicemen who were executed at the facility by Thomas William Pierrepoint, uncle to the famous executioner Albert Pierrepoint. Albert Pierrepoint disapproved of the American system of reading out the charges and sentence to the condemned man as he stood at the gallows before allowing them to make a final statement. He described it as, and I quote, a sickening interval between my introduction to the prisoner and his death. Under British custom, the drop fell between 8 and 20 seconds after I had entered the condemned cell. Under the American system, after I had pinioned the prisoner, he had to stand on the drop for perhaps six minutes while his charge sheet was read out, sentence spelled out, and he was asked if he had anything to say, and after that, I was asked to get on with the job. 
Davis was hanged on the 14th of December 1943. After being convicted by a court-martial for fatally shooting 19-year-old Cynthia June Lay and raping Muriel Foden near Savernake Hospital, Marlborough on the 28th of September 1943. The ghost of Davis has been allegedly seen and heard by a number of people, but the most visceral encounter came in September 2017, when Paul Toole, a senior site manager at the time, had this encounter. Toole was taking a tour group through the prison and for the first time told the story of Private Lee Davis. He took the group into the condemned man's cell before showing them to the gallows in the execution room. He told them of Davis's backstory and his crimes, but then shared an anecdote. As Davis moved from the condemned cell through the hidden doorway to the execution room, he was alleged to have said, Oh my God, I'm going to die. When he saw the gallows, before becoming hysterical. As Toole recounted those final words of Davis, he felt a burning sensation on his hand. He recalled, It had been the very first time I had ever told this story to visitors. As I was talking, I felt this very sharp pain, but I tried to ignore it while I was stood in front of the visitors. When I looked down at it later, it looked like a cigarette burn. Davis was known to smoke, as many soldiers did in the 1940s, but the fact that the story of Private Davis coincided with an apparently inexplicable physical burn mark is quite remarkable. Perhaps Davis's sense of shock and hysteria during the lengthy minutes as Pierre Point read him his sentence before executing him left his spirit with a sense of burning vengeance. Since that day... Paul Toole has refused to lock the prison without another person present. Another often reported phenomenon in HMP Shepton Mallet is the ghost of the White Lady. In the 1970s, the Home Office was called into HMP Shepton Mallet to investigate some inexplicable disturbances in the A-Wing. Many of the prisoners in the wing were requesting additional bedding due to a cold draft. Additionally, the occasional smell of sweet perfume would waft around the prison. The increased regularity of these phenomena resulted in prisoners becoming extremely uncomfortable and unsettled in their cells, and even the officers were refusing to work the night shift. The reports from the Home Office were inconclusive, but as the years passed and the drafts and the smells continued, several officers reported that they had seen a white shadowy figure on the stairs. The figure, the white lady, is believed to be the ghost of a female prisoner from the late 1700s. The lady in question was convicted of murdering her fiancé and was facing public hanging in the town centre. On the night before her execution, she asked for her wedding dress to be brought to her. She put it on and then went to bed, still wearing the dress. The next morning, when the prison officers came to collect her, they found her body, still wearing the dress, completely lifeless. They looked for a cause of death, but could find no physical marks on her, 
and they declared that she had died of a broken heart. To this day, there are regular reports of sightings of a white lady or the smell of sweet perfume in the A-wing of HMP Shepton Mallet. Sadly, according to reports in the national UK press, HMP Shepton Mallet, which has enjoyed a great deal of success as a tourist attraction, will be closing its doors for good in 2024. Outside HMP Shepton Mallet, there is also the curious story of another local resident, Owen Parfit, who allegedly evaporated into thin air. Owen Parfit was born in the late 1600s and raised in Shepton Mallet with his sister Mary. Not a great deal is known about his childhood, beyond the fact that he was taught to sew by his father, who was a tailor, and became his apprentice when he reached the appropriate age. Then one day, in his late teens or early twenties, Owen vanished. There was no note left, no indication of him planning to leave, no goodbye, nothing. The whole town looked for him, searching all across Shepton Mallet and the surrounding areas for young Owen, but he was nowhere to be found. Inevitably, rumours began circulating as to the nature of his disappearance. Perhaps he had joined the services and gone looking for adventures with the army or the navy. Perhaps he wanted more than to be a tailor in a sleepy Somerset town. Perhaps his father was too overbearing. Either way, this was all speculation and, tragically, his parents both died having never known what happened to their only son. In the early 1760s, many years after Owen's disappearance, an old man walked into town, claiming to be Owen Parfit. By this point, so many years had passed that very few people in Shepton Mallet would have been able to recognise Owen Parfit, even if they had met him 40 or 50 years ago, and certainly not as a vastly older man. So this newcomer could have simply been a charlatan, masquerading for all they knew. However, Owen's sister Mary recognised her long-lost brother and reassured the rest of the town that this was indeed the long-lost Owen Parfit. Of course, Mary was desperate to know where Owen had been for all these years. And he told her his story. He had indeed joined the services and gone to see the world. He told her tall tales of far-flung colonies, pirates and all manner of exciting things that were far removed from Shepton Mallet. But as he grew older, he realised that the life of an adventurer in the services was becoming too much for a man of his years. So he wanted to return to a quiet rural life and become a tailor as his father had originally wished for him. Owen settled into his new life and became a tailor once again. He lived with his sister and enjoyed the quiet domestic life that was so far removed from his days away with the services. However, Owen was an old man. By this point he was well into his 70s at least and his health began to rapidly deteriorate. He developed rheumatism, particularly in his legs, which meant he soon had to walk with the use of a cane and very soon after this was barely able to walk at all. His sister Mary, who was older than Owen, now had an elderly invalid to look after, so she enlisted the help of her neighbour, Susanna Snook, 
to help care for Owen. Owen was so incapable of walking that Snook and his elderly sister had to carry him from place to place. His legs simply didn't function. However, his brain was still sharp. Unable to work Owen's favourite pastime, in his immobile state, was to sit on his front porch. From here, he could while away the hours in this beautiful part of the world, gazing at its natural beauty, while also talking at length about his adventures in his younger days to any passers-by who might listen. He became well-known for his ability as a raconteur in Shepton Mallet, regaling people for hours about narrow escapes at sea, exotic parts of the world and innumerable heroic exploits on his part. When the weather was good, Mary and Susanna would carry Owen to the front porch in the morning and leave him there all day, bringing him in as the sun set. One afternoon in 1768, Mary and Susanna placed Owen on his usual chair on the porch in a thick coat and a blanket, for it was a fairly cold day. Susanna returned to her cottage next door, while Mary went back inside the house so they could go about their business for the day. Both women checked on Owen regularly throughout the day. They saw him at several points talking to someone or simply staring into the distance, possibly reliving his old glories. At sunset, a storm approached. Considering Owen's age and enfeebled state, Mary decided it was best to take him into shelter, away from the harsh, cold, wet weather even with a thick coat and a blanket on. She went out to the porch and found that Owen had vanished. All that remained was his coat. Initially, she thought a neighbour had moved him inside for her, as sometimes happened. But he was nowhere to be found anywhere in the house. Susanna and several other neighbours had seen him sitting there too, but said they hadn't moved him. Across the road from the porch were two farm workers who had been working all day. Even they hadn't seen him go anywhere or heard anything unusual. The house was very close to the town centre. A significant number of people regularly walked past Owen on the porch as they made their way into town and today was no exception. But no one reported anything unusual. Owen had been there, as he always was. As had been the case several decades before, a town-wide search took place. Owen was a very old man, incapable of walking, so he couldn't have gone very far under his own power. People searched far and wide across Shepton Mallet, searching once again for the vanishing Owen Parfit, but nothing was found. This report is taken from the Somerset County Herald, about the story of Owen's disappearance. The helpless man had completely vanished, leaving the great coat hanging on the back of his chair. The general opinion was that he had been spirited away by supernatural means. And to add to the terror of the superstitious neighbours, a terrible storm with lightning and thunder suddenly burst over Board Cross. A most exhaustive search was made for him, living or dead. Every wood, ditch, pond and well for miles around was searched, but in vain. 
rumours began to circulate about the nature of this mysterious disappearance. People suggested that he had been taken by supernatural forces. Perhaps the devil had claimed payment on a sinister pact they had made many years before. Perhaps he was involved in witchcraft. And the stories he told of his life in the services were complete fiction. There was a great deal of speculation about what happened to Owen Parfit. Headlines in the local newspapers suggested a number of more pragmatic causes for his disappearance than the supernatural. Firstly, a kidnapping was suggested, but in broad daylight? Owen had been in plain sight throughout the day, and no one had seen anyone approach him and snatch him away from his beloved seat on the porch. His sister Mary was an obvious suspect as someone who knew him well. She might perhaps have been fed up with caring for him for so long. But there was no evidence of this, and she was nearly 90 herself. She was distraught when Owen went missing, and evidently cared deeply for her little brother. Owen had no money to speak of, so there was no inheritance to justify murder. And he had no enemies to speak of. He was well-liked around the town. No one appeared to have any sort of grudge against him. Perhaps someone from his past had come for him. But there was no sighting of anyone unusual in Shepton Mallet that day, and the town's population was small. Outsiders were rare and stuck out when they appeared. There was also a rumour that perhaps he had been lying about his inability to walk, and simply left of his own accord. A witness said they saw a man who looked like him fleeing the area, but why would he fake it for so long? And why would he leave his coat in such unpleasant weather conditions? No trace of Owen Parfit was ever found. The mystery became legendary. Sherlock Holmes author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said of the case, It forms one of the most piquant mysteries which ever came before the British public. So Shepton Mallet harbours one of the world's most haunted prisons and one of the most inscrutable cases of a missing person. Are the White Lady and Private Lee Davis angrily stewing in HMP Shepton Mallet? And whatever happened to the twice-disappearing Owen Parfit? Do you know what? Prison stories, I just find them so upsetting. Similar to asylum stories, you know, I feel like the stories of prisons and the stories of old school asylums, like they're they're always just so similar. You know, they start out and the population becomes too big too quickly. Nobody thinks ahead. Obviously, back in the 1600s, you know, human rights or ideas around human rights were incredibly different. Like even even like a house of correction for the idle poor, which was literally people who were just considered to be unwilling to work. Off you go to prison. And there's just sort of no, there's no room for nuance there. Do you know what I mean? It's just, oh, just shove them all in there and it'll be absolutely fine. And these people would have been treated so badly. And it's really interesting to see that, you know, in the 1773, that's that's like 100 years later, over 100 years later, the inspector says, well, I mean, the prisoners aren't necessarily treated badly, but they're just ignored. And you have got men, women and children all together in small overcrowded cells where there's no fucking hygiene, everyone is sick. If one person becomes sick, you best believe the rest of your cell is becoming sick at the very least. 
and you can't you just cannot house adult men adult women and small children in the same place it is not going to end well ever i don't know why i'm saying that like you guys don't know that but like it just it always it always just blows my mind and makes me makes my stomach turn to be honest to think about the treatment of particularly women and children in those prisons like it just is absolutely horrendous and a lot of it was because oh we just don't really know where else to put you you know so you've got murderers rapists people who are proper criminals in with people who are you know quote-unquote considered unwilling to work and sometimes it was children who were orphans and they just didn't know where else to put them so they bopped them into prison with all these grown adults you know and almost a hundred years later we have another inspector who's like listen there's eight people eight grown men sleeping in a room that is barely fit for six people oh it just doesn't even bear thinking about it honestly doesn't bear thinking about and I went to Bodmin Jail recently and in Bodmin Jail they had a really good tour about life at the prison and the prisoners that were there etc and part of that tour was a look around what would have been the punishment room and all the different things that they had ways that they would punish the prisoners with labour and a lot of it was just nonsense tasks that didn't do anything like turning a handle a weighted handle all day just all day that's all you'd do turn a weighted handle oh and if you stopped you were beaten but you just you know that that was what you did and often you know those treadmills originally I think those treadmills did nothing you just walked and walked and walked and walked and obviously you know you've got whatever amount of men that were put onto the treadmill and the pace was obviously going to be set by the fastest man the strongest man so you've got people men who are weak and tired and sick who aren't going to be able to keep up and apparently it was designed that if you fell on these treadmills that you would end up with broken bones like your arms or legs would get caught I mean just hideous stuff absolutely hideous stuff and then of course they realized oh we can actually we can actually make those treadmills do things like ground up wheat or whatever and then oh we can break rocks we can break stones for road building and then making them unpick old ropes. And what they used to do was get ropes from from um, ships that were just caked in seaweed and, and you know, barnacles and, and debris. And they would be made, unpick those ropes right down to the individual fibres. And, you like, that would absolutely kill your hands. And although Bodmin Jail and Shepton Mallet are two separate jails, I'd imagine that their, their practices were quite similar. And on top of all of that, you're barely getting fed. You're getting gruel. That's all you're getting on a day-to-day basis. It, I just, it just doesn't bear thinking about. And I think, you know, a prison system is important. What that prison system looks like is up for debate among people. You know, whether prison should be punitive or reformative. I've got my own views on that. And I'm sure lots of people who are listening have their views on that. And I think for violent crimes, like something has to happen. There has to be some sort of justice that is done. But like in those days the spectrum of crime was just absurd. So obviously you had at the top end murder, rape, really violent crimes, etc. And then at the bottom end you might have like basically makey-uppy crimes to get rid of people to put them into prison. Sometimes it was as simple as, well, we don't want the the community getting out of hand so we're just going to start being really harsh on people for a while. Oh, it's just horrendous. Just It just makes me so cross. It makes me so angry. 
And I can't even imagine the amount of terrible negative energy that is stirred up in a place like that for centuries. For centuries, people there have been suffering. They have been tormented. They have been traumatised. They have been angry. They have been sad. They have been terrified knowing that they were going to be put to death. Like that is, that that has to stir up something, right? And if you take the story of Private Lee Davis, like I'm usually not somebody who really entertains these stories of like, oh, and I had three scratches on my back or whatever. I just, I just think that sometimes people get carried away in situations and they might not necessarily be three scratches from a demon or whatever people think it might be. But this story really intrigued me. So, you know, Lee Davis was sentenced for rape and murder of two women. And if you imagine how difficult it is in today's world to be convicted of rape, imagine how difficult it was back in those days in 1943 to be convicted of rape. And he was obviously petrified when it came for him to be hanged. And I found the testimony of Albert Pierpoint really interesting. This system of reading out the sentences for, you know, six minutes while the charge sheet was read out. And then they're asked, is there anything that you'd want to say? And then they would actually perform the execution. Whereas previously in the English system, it was literally just they're in, they're executed, they're done. And I, you know, I feel like probably Albert Pierpoint must have thought, listen, it's more humane, if you can call it that, to just get it over and done with quickly. And it sounds like Lee Davis was terrified and was absolutely hysterical before he was hanged. And then to have this person who is retelling this story, you know, years and years and years and years and years later... And feels a burning on their hand and then looks and they have a cigarette burn on their hand. Now, I don't know if, if any of you have ever experienced a cigarette burn. I have many times. Um, I was I started going out to like discos and clubs and stuff when smoking was still allowed indoors. And you'd often be on the dance floor and get scalded with a cigarette accidentally. But cigarette burns are really painful and they look a very particular way you can you can spot a cigarette burn they're generally pretty much perfectly round and painful and I wouldn't mistake a cigarette burn for anything else to be honest and I wouldn't say anything else was a cigarette burn I don't think and I think it's especially interesting in these particular circumstances where I would imagine that this tour guide was standing in an open space more than likely or in a room probably not touching anything probably not near anything that would cause this and I don't know personally of any insects or any creatures that would bite you and cause a cigarette burn type mark so it kind of is the first time in one of these stories in a very long time where a piece of physical evidence has really intrigued me But on the flip side of that, in regards to the story of the white lady, babe, she was a female prisoner from the late 1700s. She did not smell like perfume while she was knocking around that prison. That, my friends, is a fact. I'm pretty sure that prisoners were allowed to bathe 
once every three months, I think was the was the industry standard at the time. I know that it improved and I could be getting my time in slightly mixed up. But she did. She did not. <laughs> she did not smell like perfume and roses. No way. But it is really interesting that it was causing such a stir, whatever it was that was happening, that the Home Office were sent for and they were told, listen, we need to do a report because it's upsetting the prisoners. People are unsettled. Officers are refusing to work the night shift because of these stories that are going around. We need to bring somebody in and do an official report. And that's interesting to me because it means that to some degree there was an element of legitimacy to this story. This story was believable enough that it was causing a stir amongst the prisoners and I understand that you it, it could easily be an element of like mass hysteria in a in a in a smaller scale if you know what I mean where people are sort of winding each other up with these stories and making each other more frightened but it doesn't seem to be particularly threatening and it's interesting that it is a woman in white and a sweet smell of perfume is wafting around the prison. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe it is this woman that was supposedly dead in her wedding dress in her cell before she was put to death. But I do wonder if, just like any circumstance where a group of people are together in negative circumstances, that if one person has an experience and they tell somebody else and then that person tells somebody else, that suddenly it becomes a much bigger thing and suddenly noises are misinterpreted and suddenly what could be explained away suddenly seems inexplicable. And I would imagine that life in prison is probably very boring and probably a bit of excitement, subconsciously or consciously, whichever one it is, would while away the hours and make time pass a hell of a lot quicker. And then, of course, there's the story of Owen Parfit. Where did he go? Where did he go? Just to be honest, if I was born into a village in the 1700s, in the middle of nowhere. I think I'd probably fucking disappear too. Because life must have been difficult. Life life would not have been easy. You know. You're talking probably relatively poor. Every day is a struggle. Every day you're trying to scrabble for work. Every day you're trying not to get, I don't know, imprisoned for some minor indiscretion. Could you really be bothered? And it's such a long time to disappear for. Like... So he went when he, in his youth. Perhaps, you know, his father was too overbearing. Maybe he was like, do you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. I don't want to be a tailor. I want to see the world. I'm going to go join the army. I'm going to go join the navy. And he goes. Right, good for him. He goes off. He sees the world. He comes back all those years later and he's like, hey, I'm back, bitches. But where does he go again? To be really honest, and this is me being really callous and crass, if say his sister and his neighbor were like, "Oh, we're fucking sick of looking after him. Let's just let's just get him murdered," it'd be so much easier to like I don't know, smother him in his sleep and pretend that he died in his sleep. He was he was aged. He was already ill. He was already not able to get around. I really don't think anybody would have questioned it. To feign somebody's disappearance again seems like a lot of work for not a lot of return. To be really frank, he didn't have any money. They weren't going to get anything out of it other than their time back but even still it sounds like they just popped him out on the porch and they were like right see you later you entertain yourself by chatting shit to the locals here's what I would like to think happened that he was magicked off to the land of the fairies because of his immense talent for tailoring the fairies saw that talent and they went 
Oh, we need somebody to make some pretty snazzy outfits in our fairy underworld. They magicked him away. That was all of the other world that he would talk about. The far off exotic places. Fairyland. He builds a rapport with the fairies. He eventually is like, listen, I got to go back. And they're like, sure. You, you've served your time. You can go back. He goes back and then he's like, actually, this is a bit shit. I probably should just go back to the world of the fairies. That's where he goes. The end. I've solved the mystery. Arthur Conan Doyle, you can thank me later. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to send in your story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra spooky content, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.